Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, we're going to talk about the fact that I am recording this on Wednesday, which isn't supposed to happen. Yes, something happened that I will explain. We're also going to talk about lighting in your van, how to do it, and how not to make the mistake that a lot of people make. A tale from the road involving, yes, glowworms, a product review of my bed, and a resource recommendation about rest areas. Hi everyone, thanks very much for tuning in, especially this time, because I know this episode is late, and that is because I did an experiment and it didn't work, and I apologize. Here's the deal. I just got back from a whirlwind trip of 2,400 miles in, I don't know, seven or eight states, I haven't even counted, and I recorded the podcast while I was driving. And while I did test this to make sure it would work, I didn't take into account the different qualities of a road noise. It turns out that different surfaces of the road generate different frequencies of sound, and the road surface where I recorded the podcast, which I believe was Missouri, produced a bass note that pretty closely matched my voice, and that means I can't remove it from the recording. So if I had used that material, you would be hearing this. Tech Talk. Hey, let's talk about oil, because that's fun. And I don't think that's acceptable, so I'm re-recording it. And that means the episode's late, and I apologize for that. But I did want to tell you the story about how I ended up in that situation. As you know, if you've listened for any amount of time, I am a part-timer. I do not live in my van. I do take extended trips in my van. This was not really an extended trip. This was only four or five days. But I had it all planned out. I was going to Aurora, Kentucky, and then I was going to go to Dismal's Canyon in Alabama, and then Aurora, Texas, and then Aurora, Missouri. And everything was fine. I have all kinds of stories to tell. I got all the material I needed. The trip was a complete success. But on the last day, I don't really know what happened. I woke up in a rest area on the Oklahoma-Texas border, which is fine. That's where I planned to be. And my goal for that day was simply to get to Aurora, Missouri, do everything I needed to do there, and then to start driving back to Chicago staying somewhere for the night, and then arriving in Chicago at some point on Tuesday. I was in no rush. So I got in the van and started driving. Everything was fine. And then I realized I was going right through Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma is known to me for two reasons. One is that there is a camping world there that allows you to park overnight with free electricity. That's, that's a rarity, and it's a good thing to know, and that I-44 is a very important road for getting from the north to the south in the middle of the country, and it's a great place to stop for the night. So there's that one little tidbit. But the thing that really interested me was that I was going right by Black Wall Street. Now, if you haven't heard of Black Wall Street, it is absolutely worth Googling. It is an amazing, tragic story that really should be taught in school, and for some reason isn't, or at least it wasn't when I was in school, way back in the Dark Ages. I had a really nice visit there, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast, but it took time. I was there for maybe two hours. I grabbed some lunch from a taco truck, which was wonderful, 
and then I drove up to Aurora, Missouri. I spent a lot of time there because that was one of my challenging auroras. Aurora, Missouri has a rather dark history, and I couldn't find much of a bright future for them, but I did on this trip. It was an excellent visit, and I got way more than I expected to. And if you're new to the podcast and you don't know why I'm talking about all these auroras, it's because I'm visiting every aurora in the United States this year, again. I had already done it in 2019. I'm doing it again, and I'm going to compare pre- and post-pandemic, well, (laughs) or at least towards the end of the pandemic, we hope. Anyway, that's what's going on there. So, it's the afternoon. It's maybe 4, 4 4.30. I had a cup of coffee at the new coffee shop in downtown Aurora, Missouri, and I ran into somebody who was painting a mural, and he said that I should go check out Manette, Missouri. Now, I am generally driving northeast to get back to Chicago, and yes, of course, Monette is to the southwest. But, okay, well, I have no timetable, I might as well. So I get in the van, and I drive to Monette, and I see these really nice murals, and Monette, Missouri, looks like a really cool place to visit. I didn't spend a lot of time there, but it is a very old-school kind of downtown area that looks like it's a lot of fun, and it seemed bustling, you know, it seemed like it was in good shape. After that was done, I was like, okay, all I have to do now is drive until I find a rest area to pull over for the night, make some dinner. I had some corn that I'd been wanting to make this whole trip, some corn on the cob, and just kind of chill out for a bit. Having done 2,000 miles or whatever I had done at that point, I needed just a rest. Makes sense, right? I mean, I built a camper van so that I could drive around and sleep wherever I wanted, basically. I don't have to worry about schedules or hotels or anything like that. And then, for some reason, I threw all that out the window. I don't understand why I did this, but I got back in the van and started driving and driving and driving, and then it was 10 o'clock, and I was starting to feel a little tired, so I pulled over to a rest area and slept for an hour, and then I started driving again. And the whole time I'm doing this, I'm thinking to myself, why am I doing this? I don't need to do this. I can just stop for the night. But no. I drove, and I kept driving until 3 a.m. By this point, I'm in southern Illinois, and there's another rest area. And I pull over, and I use the restroom. And as I'm walking towards the van, I see that I have the choice of the sliding back door where the bed is already made up. All I have to do is open that sliding back door and climb into bed. And the driver's door. And for some reason, like literally, I don't think I made the decision... It just happened. I got behind the driver's seat again. And I drove all the way to Chicago. Now, to put this in perspective, I drove a 1,000 miles that day in addition to touring Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Aurora, Missouri, and Manette, Missouri, briefly. And I even made two videos at a rest area that was made up to look like Route 66. And it actually had a little kind of a Route 66 built out in the back of it, where picnic pavilions were made to look like old buildings on Route 66. It's kind of cute. But anyway, I had had a full day, and I still drove a 1,000 miles. This is crazy. This is not smart. And I am positive that during that last several hours when I was driving into Chicago, I was not the world's best driver because I was tired. This was a heck of a trip and I don't know why I did it. And then Tuesday, so this was on Monday, got home at 5 a.m. Tuesday, scared the hell out of my wife who wasn't expecting me until Wednesday. And then I slept till nine and I was a complete zombie 
all day on Tuesday. Got nothing done. And then I sit down to edit the podcast and find out that the files aren't usable and I have to do it all over again. Okay, it's not the worst thing in the world. The podcast will get out on Wednesday. It'll just be a little late and you guys will forgive me. Thank you for that. But I do have to wonder what got into me that I didn't sleep in the darned van, which is what I built it for. It's very confusing to me as to why I did that. And I'm going to have to spend a while to figure out exactly kind of what went wrong there. But whatever went wrong, it was me. The van was perfect. It performed really well this whole trip. I had a 12-volt outlet fail again. That's the only bad thing that happened. And I can... I'll figure that out. I I am confused about that. I seem to have a terrible problem with these 12-volt outlets. But the engine ran fine. I was in a spot where it was an 80-mile-an-hour speed limit for a while, and the van was like, ah, great, let's go faster. It Honestly, I love this van. It has been doing so well. But for some reason, I decided to come home and be miserable rather than sleep in the van and have a nice leisurely drive home and maybe even see some more things. The only thing I can think that I was thinking was that after having a bad time in DFW with traffic on Sunday, I didn't want to go through the traffic of Chicago again. And I realized that if I got there in the early morning, I was going to have my best chance of avoiding traffic. (laughs) But you know what? I rolled into the Chicagoland area around 4.30 in the morning, and there was still a ton of traffic at 4.30 in the morning. So there's just no getting away from it. Traffic is going to be part of my life no matter what I do. Anyway, I apologize for this self-indulgent talk here, but I just felt like I needed to tell this story, and especially so that you will not do this. (laughs) There's no reason to do what I did. I need to teach myself to slow the heck down and smell the roses. I... I talk often about having a project and having a mission, and sometimes I get so mission-focused that I forget to just take some time and see stuff. And often, well, you'll see, if you watch my YouTube channel, which is built to go a YouTube channel, you'll see the videos I made. And often the videos are impromptu. They happen. They're not planned. And I need to open up more room for that. Anyway, I'm planning the next trip now, and I hope to have a better attitude about it all. But in the meantime, let's get into some actual useful van content. Thank you for indulging me, and on with the show. Tech Talk. Let's talk about lighting. Lighting, not lightning, not lightning, lighting. What are you going to do to light your van? Starting at the most basic level, if you are going to do a no-build, where you're not going to attach anything permanent to the van, congratulations, because you live in a golden era of wireless lighting, and it's cheap. What I recommend you get is a wireless light that you can hang from a handle or something that has a remote control. Then you can put the remote control anywhere you want, and it's just like a light switch, and you press the button and your lights come on. And you may also want to get one that has a bunch of different LED colors, because as I'll talk about in a moment, changing those colors can be super useful. And you're going to be able to spend about 15 bucks to do this, so it's great. The only thing then is you have to pay for batteries, which is kind of a downer. Or you can get one of those Lucy Light things, although that brand name is awfully expensive. Basically, it's an inflatable light. It folds flat, and then you blow it up, and it has a solar panel on top. The idea is you let it charge all day, and then it gives you enough light for all night. I have one. It works great. Totally something you can do. 
Now, if you're building out your van, you're actually going to drill holes in it. Oh, no. And put in wires and batteries and stuff. My number one advice to you is do not put in too much light. That sounds crazy, right? Because you're thinking, well, I better put in a lot of light because if, if I don't have enough light, it's going to be hard to add later. Yes, that's true. But everybody seems to overestimate how much light they need. And I think the problem is that we are used to lighting rooms and houses that are much bigger spaces and light dissipates over space. So if you're in a kitchen in a house, let's say it's 10 by 10, it's not a huge kitchen. 10 by 10 is a much bigger area to light than a van. And there's less light hitting the walls in a 10 by 10 kitchen than there is in your say four by six van or however big your van is. People will buy say six puck lights and put them in. And then when they turn them on, they're blinded because there's so much light. Because that happens so often, I recommend that you do as much testing as you can with lights and make sure that whatever lighting you put in is dimmable because you want to be able to adjust it. You want to turn it on full blast for what they call in stripper clubs the ugly lights, which we might call cleaning lights, and you want to be able to dim it down so you're not blinded in the middle of the night. Here's what I did, and I think it works well. In my little NV200, I have two puck lights. Two, that's it, I only have two. When they are on full blast, it is super bright in there. It's too bright. I keep them at their lowest dim setting most of the time, and I actually turn one off. So even two puck lights is too much. The puck lights are positioned such that one is in the center to be general lighting, and the other is over the counter to be task lighting. You want to make sure you have task lighting and general lighting. Puck lights can do both. And then I installed some LED strip lights that change colors, and that acts as ambient light. And it's also great low light for two reasons. One is, in the middle of the night, if I just need to get up to take care of something at, say, 3 a.m., I don't want to turn on those big bright lights. I can just turn on the ambient lights, and it's exactly enough light to see what I need to see to get done what I need to get done. It's actually enough light that I can read with it if I want to. So it's, it's pretty good. As a bonus, the strip I got changes colors. It has a remote control. It'll dance to music. It'll do all that kind of stuff that I don't care about. But I can make the lights red. And red lights preserve night vision. So if I'm actually doing something outside the van, like I'm doing something astronomy related, I can set these lights to red, and then I can go in and out of the van and not have to worry about ruining my night vision. This is not, this, this, this can be a really big deal. If you talk to astronomy folks, they will let you know. Also, red light is harder to detect if you're trying to be stealth. If someone sees a red light through a window, they don't automatically think somebody's in the van. They might think it's a reflection from someone's taillight or whatever, but it just doesn't give that same, hmm, what's going on in that van that white light does. On top of that, I also have a spotlight that I've installed that I can just point wherever I want, and I have battery lights on my ceiling as a backup. At any rate, my overall message to you here is test your lighting before you commit to it. You probably need less than you think, and make sure each light is individually dimmable. And to me, the easiest way to do that is to buy dimmable lights that have the dimmer built into the lights, rather than trying to put a dimmer on the wall. You can do that, it complicates wiring, and honestly, it's less flexible. Product review. 
I put a video up on my YouTube channel that was a van tour. It's by far the most popular video on there, which doesn't surprise me at all. And I, it's ju it was just a Facebook Live video that I edited for YouTube. It's, it's nothing fancy. I should do a better one. But anyway, the number one question I get from that video is about my bed. So I figured I would actually give a product review of this bed. It is from Ikea, and it is called the Valentuna bed. So Valentuna is V-A-L-L-E-N-T-U-N-A, -L -L -E Valentuna. And if you Google that, if you go to Ikea's website and look for Valentuna, it will bring up a couch. That's because this is a sectional system. And one of the options for this sectional system is a bed. It's a fold-out bed. It is a piece of sectional with no back. You can buy a separate back, but you don't need it. And then you pull out basically a drawer from the front, and that's a bunch of slats for the bed. And then the cushions unzip and hinge in the front and then flip over on top. So you don't have these cushions flying around everywhere. They're always all attached. You simply flip it over. If you were doing this in a living room, it would take literally 10 seconds to set up the bed. In the van, it takes a little bit longer because you don't have the space to move around. And, of course, you got to deal with the sheets and all that. That takes a long time. If you were just going to sleep in a sleeping bag on top of this thing, it would be super quick. So it's a great solution, right? You just put it in there and it, you don't have to build anything. You can take it out if you want to use the van as a, as a van, you know, if you want to, like, move stuff in it. And I've gotten a lot of comments on it. I have slept on this thing dozens and dozens of nights, and it is fairly comfortable. I'm not going to say it's perfectly comfortable, but it's it's good enough. There is a little bit of a crease in the middle, and sometimes body parts will fall in that crease, and you have to move around a little bit. But for a folding bed, I think it ranks pretty high in the comfort level. So I do recommend these things, but here are the cons. Con number one is that they're kind of expensive. It's almost $400 for this thing. You can build a bed for a lot less if you're handy. And you can also buy all kinds of camping cots and things like that that are a lot cheaper. Con number two is that, and this is a problem I've been struggling with since I built my van, it is comfortable to sit on this thing. It makes a nice seat, but there's no back. So if you want to like lounge in it, if you want to relax and like lean back, there's nothing to lean back on. And I've tried all kinds of different solutions for this, you know, stacking up pillows. And I have this, what's called a floor seat. That's this board that has a hinge on it that makes a back on the floor. It works on there too, but nothing has really worked very well. So that's a downside. Consider how you're going to sit. If you have a separate seat or something like that, then that's fine. It is absolutely a solution. It's 75 inches long, which is a pretty standard bed length, and I believe it's 32 inches wide, which I find to be a comfortable width. In fact, I think it's even a little bit generous. I could sleep on less width. I'll have a link in the show notes. It comes in all different colors. It's actually a pretty good solution, especially for folks who don't want to have to build anything out. So that means you minivan folks, this might work for you too. Tails from the road. So if you remember way back to last week, which seems like several years ago to me, I talked about Dismalites and visiting Dismal's Canyon. Well, and then I did. It was all rather sudden. Literally in the middle of recording the podcast, I thought, well, why don't I just go there? And I did. I drove all the way to Phil Campbell, Alabama. That's the name of the town that's closest, Phil Campbell. 
and I spent a whole day at Dismal's Canyon doing tours during the day and during the night. You absolutely should do this, but this is a tale from the road, so I want to tell you the tale of what happened at night. So they only allow 15 people in their tour groups, and it's very hard to get in. If you do want to do the night tours, you have to call them Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and keep calling until they answer, because they don't have an answering machine. And they will keep selling tickets until they fill up. It seems like a crazy way to do it, but that's how they do it. If you haven't seen the place before, and your first introduction to the place is night, that's kind of cool. There's this gothic gate that you have to go through with all these weird lights. It looks like you're entering some kind of castle or something. And you walk over this hill and then down to this dining hall. In fact, I think it might have been a dining hall the Girl Scouts built like 100 years ago. And there's a big patio with a big fire, and they throw in one of those colored fire packets, and it's kind of cool. And, you know, you can kind of get the anticipation. And then they lead you down into the canyon. So I didn't realize this before, but this canyon, you can't really get into. I mean, it's like a cave without a roof in that there's no level place to walk into it. Originally, there was this tiny little slit in the rocks called Fat Man's Misery, like all of these things have, and that was the only way in and out of the canyon. Now there's a staircase. It's a fairly steep staircase, and you can go up and down that, but if you were in this canyon a hundred years ago, you were kind of trapped, and in fact, they forced the Chickasaw Indians to stay in this canyon under armed guard before they forced them to do the Trail of Tears. So it was actually used as a prison. The purpose of doing the night tour, of course, is to see the Dismalites, which are these glowworms that are absolutely fantastic. So they ask that you only bring red lights, and they ask that you hold the red lights in your hand. They don't want you wearing headlights because they can blind people and also... You're doing this in pitch black, and you're walking over uneven terrain next to a raging river with lots of low-hanging branches. I mean, it's a little bit adventurous, you know? You're, you're kind of heading out into the wilderness. Not really, but this is not for the not for the meek. My tour guide's name was Billy. He's a great guy. He's, he has exactly the right attitude for being a tour guide. And he brought him with him this very strong UV light, and he was shining it around, and he found a millipede. He called it a centipede, but I think it was a millipede. And it glowed crazy bright under that UV light. It was amazing to see how this animal looked totally different with a different kind of light. If you shined a white light on it, it was nothing. But if you shined the black light on it, holy cow, it was super bright. And that was a warning to creatures that might eat it that can see in the UV spectrum that it was filled with toxins. So our goal was to get to a place called Witch's Cavern. (laughs) I can see why it was named that. As you enter this place, what you start to see are these very faint blue lights on the rocks. And when you let your eyes adjust to the darkness, you realize they're everywhere. You're surrounded by them. And on some of the rocks, there are so many of these lights that you can tell that they space themselves out. It's like they each claim a little bit of territory and they form almost a grid pattern, every one being equidistant from another. The light quality is unlike anything I've ever seen. Now, I mentioned before that I have been to New Zealand and seen the relatives of these things. These are better. No, I'm sorry, New Zealand. I love you, and I love your tours of your your glowworm caves. But the Dismalites, which again are a, a totally different species and actually have a different way of producing light, they're not really the same thing at all. I got an education on that. It's just a striking light, but very dim. 
It is impossible to take a picture of these things with a cell phone camera. In fact, the pictures that you can find, which I will put in my show notes, they had to get a stellar photographer, stellar as in someone who photographs stars, to come in, and he had to alter his equipment even to get these shots. So forget about taking pictures. This is the kind of thing you're going to go to experience rather than be able to share it with other people. But that kind of makes it special. There were no bugs, no mosquitoes, just a group of 15 people, almost all of whom were from Alabama. I was the only foreigner, kind of dumbstruck by the beauty of these creatures that really don't live in many other places. They have found them in a few other states, but Dismal's Canyon is just about the only place where you can see them in numbers. You might be able to see one or two in some of these other spots, but in Dismal's Canyon, you can see hundreds and thousands of them. It's just, I cannot describe to you via audio what the experience was like seeing these things. And it's one of those moments where you're experiencing something and you know that you're going to have to leave soon, but you don't want it to end. So you want to do something to memorialize it. You want to take a picture. You want to take one home as a pet. But you can't do these things. You, you can't do these things. Do not take one of these home as a pet. They don't live very long anyway. So the only thing you can do is live in the moment and experience it. And in our land of social media and sharing our lives openly that I fully admit that I am part of, this isn't that. This is you and this little tiny glowing creature sharing time and space together temporarily, never to be repeated because these things only live for six months and chances are they'll all be dead by the time you return. And so the meaning and joy from that experience is purely yours. It cannot be shared. All you can do is invite others to come and have that experience. And that's what I'm doing here. If you can, get to Dismal's Canyon and see this place. It is really something special. Absolutely do the night tour. They rent cottages there, by the way. You can rent a cottage. And from what I can tell, and they have a campground, I talked to some of the people in the campground, and they said they could see Dismalites in the campground. So if for some reason you couldn't get to the night tour, you could stay in the campground and see them in your campsite, just not in the same numbers. Really, I can't overstate what a profound moment of natural beauty this place is. It's, I, I think I sometimes oversell places, but I don't think I can oversell this one. A place to visit. Folks, if you are a student of history or you're an American and you want to understand American history, please visit the John Hope Franklin Center for Reconciliation in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There are monuments that are just some old white guy up on a statue and you're supposed to honor him for some reason that isn't often articulated. It's just a statue in his name. They've never really done much for me. And then there are other monuments like the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. that really give you a sense of the sacrifice, of the importance of the event with everyone's names listed there as they stretch down these black rocks. The John Hope Franklin Center tries to do that. Now remember, this is the John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park, which is part of the Center for Reconciliation. The goal of this park isn't just to tell you the story of what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma on May 31st and June 1st of 1921. It's also 
to promote healing. So I'm going to briefly describe this place and ask you that if you are ever anywhere near Tulsa, that you go spend an hour or two just taking in this free and innovative piece of healing art. It is a park, and as you walk in, there's a beautiful waterfall. And in front of that waterfall is a statue. It's actually a group of three statues depicting people that were photographed during the 1921 race massacre that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia article if you haven't already heard about this. The three statues have names. One is called Humiliation, and it is a statue of a black man with his arms up that was taken during the massacre. Next to that is a statue called Hostility. And it is a statue of a white man holding a rifle while smoking a cigar with a bit of a smirk on his face. I don't know the history of the photograph that that came from. And then the last one is Hope. And it is a statue of John Hope Franklin, who worked his entire life to try to bring the community back together after this tragic event. That's nice. I think that's great. And that, but that's kind of standard fare for this type of memorial park. It's reminiscent of the Martin Luther King Memorial in San Francisco, or even the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial in Washington, D.C. It has that kind of a vibe. But that's just a tiny part of this park. As you turn around and head to the center of the park, there is a 30-foot-tall totem pole, which is the best way I can describe it, that shows the history of black Americans starting at the bottom and then winding all the way up to the top. I will not describe to you what this looks like. I will leave that for you to experience yourself. But I can tell you it is very detailed, and it's not all accessible to you from the ground. There are newspaper articles embedded up there that are way too high for you to read, and that is part of the message of this thing. We can't truly understand the entirety of this or understand each little detail. But as a whole, put together on this tower, we have a good appreciation for how far we've come over time. I could spend many hours looking at this, this one sculpture. It is remarkable. And then there is a labyrinth that surrounds the park. They call it a healing path. And the idea is that you walk this path in silence and think about the things you've seen. It wanders all around the park in... Uh, like a meditative path. You, you've seen these things pro before, probably. And the plaque says that the goal is that after you walk this path, you will experience some healing on the way out. And that's it. It's very simple. It's, it's a little bit understated, even. There's no gift shop to go through. There's no admission booth. There's nobody selling things in there. It's just a place to understand what happened and to hope that things like this will never happen again. I highly recommend you visit it. It's called the John Hope Franklin Center for Reconciliation. It's right near the college campus. Very easy to find. And a tip for you, they do have free parking. There is a parking lot for the park. So drive around the park until you find that parking lot. And don't pay for parking on the street like I did. I'll have a link in the show notes that explains everything that I just talked about more clearly. 
But like many of these places, I kind of feel like you should just go there and experience it. You don't necessarily need to learn a lot about it until you experience it. Although I do think it is every American's duty to know about the race massacre. It was something that should have been taught in school. I've said that a few times because I really, really believe that. Resource recommendation. There has been some chatter lately about rest areas and whether we should sleep in them or not and how safe they are. I am going to come out saying, yes, you should always consider a rest area for sleeping. Now, they vary greatly. Some of them are just little dirt spots with a vault toilet. Some of them are these big, huge super centers that almost have a mall inside of them. They're all very different. Every state handles them differently. And they don't all technically allow overnight parking. But in reality, I think the chances of anyone getting kicked out of a rest area are really slim unless that rest area has had a problem in the past. Take that for what you will, but I have never even come close to fearing getting kicked out of a rest area, and I've stayed at dozens and dozens. Rest areas have a lot going for them. First off, they are a place to park where people are supposed to park. People are in and out of there no one's going to notice you. You're not going to be bothering any neighbors. There's no staff there at night usually to be wondering about your van. You're going to be left alone. Two, you're not going to be alone. There are almost always other people there, and there are almost always other vans there or other people sleeping in their cars. I try to park near them, not like right next to them, but near enough to them that if there was some problem of some sort, we would all hear it and hopefully respond. And they all have restrooms, which is great. And they often have other resources, too. I've seen them with dump stations that were free. I've seen them with fresh water that was free. And one I stayed at in Missouri just recently had a free microwave oven and a free Keurig if you happen to bring some pods with you, which I thought was a nice gesture. And they often have little, like, museum-y things, too, which is nice. Just a little bit of something to, you know, give you a sense of where you are. So consider rest areas as a resource. I know some people don't feel safe there. I was reading a thread the other day where a bunch of single women were saying that they don't feel safe in rest areas, they feel safer in truck stops. I completely respect that. You should only stay in places where you feel safe. All I can say is that I feel safer in rest areas than I do in truck stops. And I think you should consider them as a place to stay, if not as part of your plans, maybe at least as a backup. Well, folks, thanks for listening to this rather unusual episode. We'll be back to normal next week, I promise. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And I've mentioned the YouTube channel several times. There's going to be a bunch of new videos coming up very soon. So that is Built to Go, a YouTube channel. There's a link in the show notes. Until next time, remember the wise words of Taylor Swift. Just because you make a good plan doesn't mean that's what's going to happen.